Hello, and welcome from the Renaissance Baptist Church of Brooklyn in Ontario, Canada. Join us this week as Pastor John Blackman shares from the book of 1 Corinthians. Copies of the catechism that we use each Sunday at the back, you can take home for free. There's also always a uh, stack of Bibles back there, which we don't mind if they keep disappearing. Um, We just replace them. So if you don't have a Bible of your own, you're welcome to take one of those. Uh, They would go well with the uh, little devotional I gave you if you don't have anything to uh, follow along with. Uh, Another thing that I thought of, and I could have held it up, but I don't have it with me, is that our our church phone number is actually my cell phone. So if you ever want to ask us any questions about something you heard on a Sunday morning or you have any questions about our church, if you're new here, want to know how to get more involved or whatever, you'd like to meet for a coffee, you can just look up the church online, whatever that phone number is that's there. Um, ring it, and that's my cell phone. And uh, you can also text using that. And if you ever had any questions about something that we say here or uh, any way we can help you, just uh, I want to let you know that. We're taking a bit of time off of our First Corinthians series. We'll pick it up next Sunday because chapter 15 happens to be perfect for Easter Sunday. But uh, today we're just going to kind of um, focus on Palm Sunday. We're going to let the... Uh, church calendar, uh, pick our passage today. In, in Matthew's gospel, which we're not going to look at today, Jesus asks a question that we often, we often hear it asked, or when we read it in Matthew, we almost hear it like it's uh, some kind of a theology quiz for the disciples, um, a large argument within the worldwide church around the world is that this question sets up a, a kind of an answer for why some people think that the Pope in Rome is uh, forever the head of the church. Uh, we won't, don't need to get into that right now. But what was the question? What's this question in the Gospel of Matthew? Well, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And then he gets some answers from them. And then he goes in even deeper and he looks right at them and he says, but who do you say that I am? And uh, one time, one summer, a few years ago, we went through the Gospel of John, and we just looked at all the I am statements that Jesus makes, and, and we kind of asked the question, who does Jesus say that he is? Couldn't really make it work with I am. I think I did. Who do I say that I am? I think that was the name of our series all that summer. So they're all important questions. When, when we ask a person who they think Jesus is, we can learn a lot about that person. If, uh, if you were to use my cell phone number and, uh, you know, you were to call and say, hey, you know, I'm interested in uh, being baptized, um, I would kind of arrange to come and sit and talk to you. But uh, one important thing I'd want to know is who, who do you think Jesus is? You know, I'd want to find out whether you were um, what we uh, usually call a, a believer. If you agree with Jesus uh, with, about who Jesus claimed himself to be. But the right answer to that question is, who do you think I am? Is, uh, it, it's so much more than just an answer to a question. It's more than a correct statement. It's, it's actually a vocation. It's a calling. Uh, the answer to that question, when done correctly, is really a, a whole life. Uh, for a person to claim they believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, is immediately put to the test. Because if you believe that then, uh, you know, we just read a commandment about submitting to the authority of your parents. Well, if you're acknowledging Jesus as the Messiah, as, as God, as the living God, then you're called to repentance. 
you're called then and re after repenting and uh, placing your faith in Christ, you're, you're called immediately to go into a step of obedience, which we know is baptism. And then beyond that, there's a whole lot of submission that we call following him as a disciple, which involves uh, being connected with a local church. So, so that whole statement, who do you think I am, immediately becomes a whole life. There's a lot to it. It's an entire life calling. I, I want you to, uh, I want to look at an important story um, in John's gospel, and, and it's one of the various accounts of Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem. And the story we're going to look at today, both stories, are, are happening just a week before Jesus' death. It's the event that Palm Sunday is named after. And I don't think I've ever preached a Palm Sunday sermon um, from the Gospel of John, so it's, it's a new kind of take for me this morning. But I want to look at it this year and see how it affects all those various questions. Who do they believe Jesus is? Who do you believe Jesus is? Who does Jesus actually claim to be? Now, John's Gospel is, is a different one. You, you discover that quickly. It's it's the one where over and over we see people getting into arguments with the Messiah over who they believe the Messiah is. Just think about that. Like the, the real Son of God, Messiah, the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, is standing there in front of them, and so many people are having arguments with them because they actually prefer this paper Messiah or this idea Messiah that they have. They're clinging to that. That's what, that's what their hope is in. The Messiah, the Messiah, the Savior of their imagination, rather than the real one that's standing right in front of them. John kind of goes at that whole dynamic over and over again through his gospel. Um, if you ever heard the other three gospels referred to as the synoptics, I mean, you'll hear that from uh, Bible scholars like Scotty. Um, you know, they'll say the synoptic gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. What, what does that mean? It, you can think of the that synoptic, think of that word almost like synchronize. You basically, those other three Gospels, you can put them nicely into a parallel Gospel account. You know, Mark doesn't have the birth stories, but basically, you can get almost the same timeline of Jesus' life. The events that happen, happen about in the same order in all those Gospels. Most Bible scholars think that uh, Matthew and Luke had Mark's Gospel already to work from, because you'll see direct quotations, a lot of the same teaching. They just all line up really well. They have slightly different emphasis, but John's Gospel is really different. Things are intentionally put out of order and, and placed in different places because he's telling a narrative. And, and his narrative is he wants you and me and anyone else, no matter what persecution they're under as Christians, to be able to continue to believe that Jesus is the Savior. I'll, I'll quote that verse from chapter 20 a little bit later. So, so John does move things around. Um, he has miracles, stories, conversations, and the only place you find them is in the Gospel of John. There's really important things in the other Gospels that don't even show up in the Gospel of John. One of those stories, though, that's, that's in all the Gospels but's different in John is this one on Palm Sunday. In, in those other accounts that I've preached before, there's always these specific details given in advance from Jesus to the disciples about the how they're about supposed to go into town ahead of time and uh, borrow a burrow, uh, acquire a donkey. Um, Jesus gives them that job. In the Gospel of John here, it's just, it kind of happens really late. People are already cheering and the word's already getting out. They're making these big proclamations and it basically just says clearly Jesus goes and gets this animal that he's going to ride in. So John has something important to say about that. That's just one of the ways that it's really different. I think that John, uh, when we think about Palm Sunday also, 
it always, it's, it always seems out of sync. Talk about things being out of order. You know, at a church like Renaissance, we kind of have a tradition here on Easter weekend. We try to keep things in order. You know, you're going to be here. Uh, we'd love you to come for, for uh, Good Friday, but Good Friday is very serious. It's very reflective. There's a little bit of a sad kind of vibe to it. It's definitely meant to be, uh, you know, kind of pour your heart out and think about the great sacrifice Jesus made on the cross. It's, it's, you can almost call it dark. It's, it's called a shadow, a service of shadows, tenebrae. That's, what we, that's the tradition we follow. And then two days later, it's pancake breakfast and bright lights and everybody's cheering and you got your fancy hat and your new Easter dress on and everything's celebrated. Palm Sunday seems out of order. It's a week ahead of time. People are waving palms. You've heard preachers like you probably this one even say sometimes, you know those people that are yelling crucify him. One week ago, they were saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and waving palms. But John is telling us this story and Palm Sunday happens when it happens for important reasons and to really reveal important eternal truths to all of us. So all of that as a background. Um, one more thing I want you to notice about John, if you, if you had one of those Bibles from the back, you know, if you have a Bible in front of you, you can grab the Gospel of John and you can kind of put it all between your fingers and realize, you know, it's about this thick of a book. And, uh, you know, you can hold the whole Gospel of John. Then you get to chapter 12 that we're going to be looking at and you, you grab it and you look and, and it's like, you know, there's the whole, there's the first half of the Gospel of John. There's about 21 chapters. And you realize half the whole book is just one week of Jesus' life. It's pretty amazing. That's another really important distinction and difference with the Gospel of John. Um, so chapter 12 is a major turning point. I, I would say that uh, as I've looked at it this week, John means for us to see it as Jesus' last words to an unbelieving world. Uh, if not an unbelieving world, just kind of the general population. He's had this very public ministry. He's been preaching to all the crowds. This chapter is the last time Jesus in the Gospel of John addresses the crowds. It, because it, the next chapters, chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, Jesus is only talking to his disciples. You can look through. There's a lot of red ink in there if you've got a nice fancy red, red letter Bible like mine. There's a lot of red ink, but you'll find he's only talking to his immediate disciples in all those chapters. In chapter 17, he's only really talking to his heavenly father. We call that the high priestly prayer. In chapter 18, he's only really talking to his arresters, plus Peter. Who, but at this time, Peter's kind of crossed over onto the dark side temporarily. So in that chapter, he's only really talking to his arresters. And then in chapters 20 to 21... After he's been resurrected, again, he's only speaking to believers, his closest friends. So these really are verbally his last words to the world. Yeah. Uh, obviously, the cross is a giant exclamation mark, a message that's been going on to the whole world ever since. But in John's gospel, we're, what we're getting is, what, what's the last thing that Jesus is going to say to the wide world before he no longer has the chance to address them that way? Um, I don't usually skip so far ahead, but in chapter 12, verse 34, if you'll look, the million-dollar question is, who is this son of man anyway? So there's that question. Who is this son of man anyway? That's what people are asking Jesus. You're talking about this son of man, and they're not recognizing he's talking about himself. Well, who, who is he anyway? That's really just a variation on a question. 
that John, the writer of this gospel, he's been answering that all through this gospel. If you go way back to chapter 1, very first chapter of the gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29, and you will hear John the Baptist, who we consider a capital P prophet, just like prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and all those people, the last great one before Jesus starts his public ministry, and that prophet John says, look, chapter one, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So it's not like there's any big surprise at this point. You don't have to get all the way down to chapter 12 to start figuring out that's who John is trying to help us see that he is. So the immediate setting for our chapter 12 stories um, are, are in chapter 11, verse 55. Look at chapter 11, verse 55 says that it was almost time now for the Jewish Passover celebration. And many people from all over the country arrived in Jerusalem several days earlier several days early so they could go through the purification ceremony before the Passover began. Before the Passover began. Um, speaking of chapter, uh, well, just saying that, what did I just said? What did I just say in chapter one? Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now, just before our stories, all the people are coming to Jerusalem to be cleansed, to prepare for the Passover. It's all about cleansing for sin coming up, and that's why they're there. So these people are made for each other, aren't they? This crowd in Jesus. And, and, and so are you and I. And you and me and Jesus, we're made for each other as well. Because we need cleansing that, whether we knew it until God revealed it to us, we're only going to find that in Jesus. Um, in chapter 11, when you combine it with chapter 12, chapter 11 really sets up chapter 12 as you would expect. And you can almost see these two chapters as a five-act play. I'm going to whip through this because I won't even cover all five of these acts. But, but first in act one, Jesus is anointed for his burial by Mary of Bethany. If you take a look at chapter 11, this is the raising of Lazarus' story happens in chapter 11. And then in chapter 12, Mary's going to do something in response to this miracle that Jesus did in chapter 11. And so uh, in, in chapter 11, uh, verse 8 and 11, verse 16, 11, verse 8, um, we see there's all this tension. There's, there's definitely a setup of a heightened awareness that something big's about to happen or this could go sideways on us really easily. Because even back before Jesus comes to Bethany, which is just outside Jerusalem, because he hears his lifelong friend Lazarus is very ill, he knows he's going to die, he intentionally delays so that he will die. It's another sermon for another time. But here in verse 8 of chapter 11, his disciples, when Jesus says, well, let's, let's go to Judea and look into this. And the disciples say, Rabbi, only a few days ago, the people in Judea were trying to stone you. Are you going there again? Like, Jesus, uh, not a great place to go right now. And then down in verse 16, Thomas, he knows what's going on. Thomas, we usually give him the really unfair nickname of Thomas the Thomas the doubter, doubting Thomas. Thomas, nicknamed the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too and die with Jesus. Like, I know it's really dangerous, but let's go anyway. So that's a little bit of the background of what's going on. So Jesus goes in that kind of attention-grabbing attention situation, and he raises a dead man. So there's already, he's already going into something that 
his disciples think, we should maybe keep this on the down low a little bit. It's kind of dangerous. And Jesus goes into this situation and actually raises a guy from the dead. And his intentional delay tells us that he's done it for that reason. So now we get to chapter 12. They're having a thanks for resurrecting our brother banquet. And so now the tension's even higher. And Jesus is kind of managing the hype that's been really started because of this great miracle of raising a guy from the dead. And he's now going to manage this hype and he's going to use it to teach us some things that are really important. And then eventually chapter 12 even asks the question, if all of this is true, how come so many, so few people uh, end up believing in Jesus? They're all huge things. Jesus cries out in this passage we're going to look at in the last act. And when he cries out, it tells us what is really important to Jesus. Have you ever had a counselor uh, speak to you or somebody that's just really kind of introspective and can really get to the heart of things and says, what do you really want? And we usually like, I don't know. <laughs> that's usually the last question we can ever really answer. Well, what does Jesus really want? What he, what he shouts out at the end of this passage really opens that up for us. I know this is a long, I know this is a long intro, but it'll make sense in a few minutes. One last thing I've already hinted at. So many people in John's Gospels say and do things that are far more significant than they realize. Some of them mean something completely different than how the gospel writer takes their words and uses them. Uh, what's an example of that? If you have your Bibles, you can look in chapter 11, verse 45, this high priest Caiaphas. He says something, and the, the, all the religious leaders, what are we going to do about Jesus? You know, there's going to be a riot if we kill him. And he basically says, well, you know, guys, it's better that one person die for the sake of uh, all these other people. And it sounds like a gospel message. He doesn't even realize what he's saying. That, that's one example. Um, we can see in uh, chapter 12, verse 3, you know, really Mary in chapter 12, verse 3, uh, she thinks she's just pouring out her thanks to Jesus for raising her brother from the dead and pours this fragrant perfume all over her feet and wipes it with her hair. But Jesus reveals she's actually preparing his body for burial. She doesn't even know the significance of what she's doing, I don't think. Um, the crowd, they're quoting important Old Testament passages we're going to see when they're throwing down palm leaves. Jesus grabs a specific animal to clarify a slightly misunderstood statement. And then verse 16 tells us that even the disciples at this point, they don't even realize that prophecy is being fulfilled at this point. But eventually they do come to that understanding. Why do I point all of that out? Because the only person who really knows what he's doing is Jesus. That's, that's an important thing to realize in life as well. We want so many questions answered. We want to know every step that's going forward. That's the great thing about following Jesus. He actually knows what's going on. Uh, he, he knows what he's doing. And despite these people not knowing what they're doing, God sovereignly uses all kinds of people, people who don't really know what they're doing, saying they're friends and foes of Jesus, and God's able to use all of those things to fulfill his plans. So I want you to remind yourself again that the words and acts that you perform in your service of Jesus may bear significance beyond anything you'll ever know. When you're serving God, when you're sharing God's word, when you're sharing your faith, when you're doing acts of compassion in Jesus' name, you're often doing things far beyond anything you'll ever know. 
as far as significance. So let's jump into this passage that's bursting with meaning beyond what we can hope to uncover. And again, let me start our reading again in the end of chapter, uh, in the end of chapter 11. I'm going to start in verse 55. It was now almost time for the Jewish Passover celebration, and many people from all over the country arrived in Jerusalem several days early so they could go through the purification ceremony before Passover began. They kept looking for Jesus, but as they stood around in the temple, they said to each other, what do you think? He won't come for Passover, will he? Meanwhile, the leading chief priests and Pharisees had publicly ordered that anyone seeing Jesus must report it immediately so they could arrest him. Six days before Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. Martha served, and Lazarus was among those who ate with him. Then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard, and she appointed Jesus, she appointed, she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance. It's a thank you party for raising a dead man that will lead and point to Jesus' own death. Mary takes that famous year's wages perfume, anoints Jesus, wipes her feet, his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance. That's a pretty decent worship service goal right there for everyone in a local church. Hold nothing back. Nothing held back for the Lord by the worshiper. Both Jesus and Mary would have left that room reeking of the experience that just happened. Um, we would call that the aroma of grace. Have you ever noticed, I know I hadn't, that in chapter 11, we do have these sisters that are famous where Martha's the hardworking doer and Mary's the sit at Jesus' feet and, you know, just be concerned with the one thing. Lazarus is the guy that dies and comes back. They're all here in this story. Back in chapter 11, when Lazarus was dead guy and Jesus has rolled a stone away, Martha, one of the sisters, says, but, but Lord, the smell. He's been dead for four days. And then here in this chapter, one of the other sisters is pouring out all this perfume. I, I've never really thought of that contrast. You don't really think about the smell of things. I've said before, Janine reminded me that the other passages talk of Jesus, the, the perfume even been poured on his head and it would have gotten on his garments and, and this is a strong odor. This act of worship would have been with Jesus. You ever had one of those bad car air fresheners that your dad used to hang from the, you know, the whole car smells of it? This act of worship would have followed Jesus. Mary's doing it with her hair. I'm sure six days from now, she can still smell that act of worship that she did while Jesus is on this cross. This, this scent thing is very important. Um, so, but anyway, I'm not sure if Mary hadn't bothered to prepare her own brother's body for burial. Um, maybe the sisters concerned, considered that kind of a waste of an expense, but here she pours it on. And that leads to the Judas reaction in verses four to six. Let me read that for you. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said that perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Not that he cared for the poor, John writes. He was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. 
Um, Dan Sher made a, had a great sermon here just a couple of months ago, so I, I don't need to spend too much time on that, on that story, but I just want to make a couple other observations. While Mary's being a Christian service spendthrift, pouring out a year's wages, holding nothing back, no, you know, sparing no expense for this opportunity to serve Jesus, Judas is playing Mr. Pragmatic. And not all pragmatism is legit. Jesus is pretty much the opposite of Judas. Jesus has just spent three years emphasizing his concern and care for the poor and the outcast. And here's Judas thinking, wondering if this is a, a wasteful thing here. We could have used this money, but Jesus says that's not really what Judas' heart's all about. Sometimes people are just being pragmatic and think that uh, all of these expenses and, and, and investing your life in service of Jesus and worship of him is kind of a waste that it could be put to so many better things. It, it's not always the true thing that's going on in their heart. It's definitely not here. And it's another example where Jesus really knows what's going on. Maybe Judas being there in that all along that time is a, an example where Jesus gave a parable of the wheat and the tares. And said, you know, don't, don't pull out all the tares now because there's wheat that'll be damaged. Wait until the harvest and, and then you can tell one from another. Whatever it is, Jesus says, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. There's the other example. Jesus knows what's going on. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Have you ever realized, and I think Dan emphasized this in his sermon a couple of months ago. Have you ever realized that, well, there are many ways... We might serve Jesus in the future. We find ourselves often in concrete situations where we can only obey him, worship him, serve him, sacrifice to him right now. Right where you live right now. Uh, Jesus is pregnant. Oh, we could do all of this in the future with this. But Mary sees this opportunity to worship Jesus right now, and she does it. Verse 9 to 10, we have the, effect, the uh, Lazarus effect crowd. When all the people heard of Jesus' arrival, they flocked to see him and also to see Lazarus, the man Jesus had raised from the dead. Then the leading priest decided to kill Lazarus too, for it was because of him, Lazarus, that many of the people had deserted them and believed in Jesus. They, they were all, all the people now in this crowd and at this thanks for raising our brother from the dead party, the thing they're all experiencing right now is something that uh, none of us have ever experienced yet. I, I've been at a lot of banquets in my life, most of them Christian banquets, because banquets, after all, are the culturally acceptable evangelical substitute for a dance. So I've been at a lot of them. I've never been at one with anyone who'd been dead for four days. Never been. Have you been at a banquet ever with somebody that was dead for four days and is at that banquet? I mean, I've probably been at a banquet with my father-in-law and my brother. They both had their hearts stopped for a few seconds and some oblation thing, but that's a whole lot different than dead for four days. And that, what would it be like? Like, Jesus is a celebrity in this story, but you could realize Lazarus too, with what Jesus had done in his life, people would be like, what's him over there? I don't even know if I want to talk to him. Like, he would be quite strange. Like, nobody's ever been at a banquet with a guy that had been dead for four days. Sure, some trickster, somebody pretending or whatever, but it's a pretty big deal. And, and, and the, what Jesus has done in Lazarus' life is now having an effect on people. Many people are coming to believe, and the authorities want him killed. 
What do you do with what Jesus has done in your life? Where he's made changes. He's brought new life to you. As you share that, it has potential power to be just what someone else needed to hear. They, they, they needed to meet somebody else that was a believer. And, and there's something about your testimony that can be very powerful. Uh, Tanya, who we pray for all the time, I remember her telling a funny story about being at the bus and seeing this woman in her neighborhood that she knew was a Christian. And there was something about that meeting where it's like, maybe I can do this. You know, I know she's a Christian and, and there's something about that. But on the other hand, too, it's not all conversions and people coming forward at a mass rally because being closely associated with Jesus and his power may also bring you persecution. It's another reason why John's writing this gospel because the people that are reading it for the first time were in that kind of a situation. Um, in John 20, 31, John writes, but these, and I added in here the word stories. I think I have a slide for this. But these stories are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. With all these things going on at the Judas, I mean the Judas, at the Lazarus, uh, thanks for raising Lazarus party, we read that the next day, verse 12 and 13, the next day, the news that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem swept through the city. You know, a week ago, he just raised a guy from the dead. A woman just blew a year's wages on pouring perfume all over his feet. Um, a large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down to the road to meet him. They shouted, Praise God, blessing on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the king of Israel. Now, palm branch waving, it was a tradition back then. It's, it said something. Palm branch waving is what you do when a winner paraded into town. Uh, a king that, that, a mighty warrior that just won a great battle and comes in as the victor. You grab palm branches out and you... You praise them for their victory. And they're, they're quoting from Psalm 118. And it's a beautiful psalm. You can write that down in your notes. It, it starts with, let all Israel repeat his faithful love endures forever. It's this kind of, we are the champions kind of psalm. And it gives all the credit to this great um, leader to come. Open for me the gates where the righteous enter, and I'll go in and thank the Lord. These gates lead to the presence of the Lord, and the godly enter there. I thank you for answering my prayer and giving me victory. They're praying, Jesus, Lord, save, save us now, is what they're praying when they bring this psalm out. And they're quoting from this psalm. And they say, the Lord God is shining upon us. Take, take the sacrifice and bind it with cords on the altar. I missed verse 25. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Please, Lord, please save us. Please, Lord, give us success. Bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what's going on. That's the party. Jesus recognizes all that hype. And, and our passage tells us, Jesus found a donkey. I understand it can be translated, but Jesus went and found a donkey and wrote on it, fulfilling another prophecy from the, the prophet Zechariah where it's again talking about this beautiful picture where in the future this great champion king, the, ho the hope of all Israel is going to come in and he's going to fulfill all their greatest dreams. And people are going to come from all over the world to kneel in front of this great king that's coming in. But Zechariah writes, Rejoice, 
O people of Zion, shout in triumph. That's what they're doing, people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle, and your king will bring peace to the nations. His realm will stretch from sea to sea and from the Euphrates to the ends of the earth. Jesus is saying, yeah, I am the coming victorious king, but this kind of coming victorious king. He intentionally wants them to see that. They think he's coming in to take over, and he's coming to take the cross. They think he's coming to take control, and, and he's, he's coming to die, and he's coming in peace. Apparently, if you arrived on a white steed, you're flexing your muscles and showing what a great and fearsome king you are. When you come in a donkey, it's like, it's like coming in on a convertible. <laughs> it's like driving in in a Hummer and driving in a Miata. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just not as threatening, and you're pretty confident that there are no more enemies, and, and you've, you've accomplished everything that God set out for you to do. And that's how Jesus rides in as this humble king. He wants to be known as that kind of a king. You know, 2,000 years later, we still struggle with this contrast of Jesus' kingdom and what it's supposed to look like. Uh, people still think that he's, uh, his primary job and what we really want him to see is to, to be the prime minister or the president or, or whatever it is. And Jesus' kingdom's completely different. And it's not dependent upon these little rulers uh, that are around in the world. Um, he doesn't ride into the capital to take the throne or take over, but to take the cross and to overcome. And verse 16 tells us that eventually the disciples did understand what his purposes were. His disciples didn't understand at the time, but this was a fulfillment of prophecy. But after Jesus entered into his glory, they remembered what had happened and realized that these things had been written about him. When it's happening, the disciples don't know that the cross is going to be, it's not going to look very glorious. And a number of years later, when John's writing this, he now realizes that was Jesus' glory. Um, Jesus goes on to say, um, uh, verse 25 to 26, I want to jump down to. Um, Oh, let, let me just keep reading the passage. Many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead, and they were telling others about it. That was the reason so many went out to meet him, because they'd heard about his miraculous sign. Then the Pharisees said to each other, look, there's nothing we can do. Everyone's gone after him. And, and now they've just made a prophecy, and it's fulfilled in verse 20. Some Greeks who had come to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration paid a visit to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. They said, sir, we want to meet Jesus. Philip told Andrew about it, and they went together to ask Jesus. What's, what's that all about? Um, again, those Pharisees say a lot more than they realize. Despite their best efforts, this gospel message, the gates of hell won't prevail against it. It's going to continue. We, we read this, and it seems innocent enough. There's just some Greek guys, and they're asking Andrew to get them a backstage pass to meet this celebrity of the day that's just come in in this big parade. We see that happen all the time. Hey, hey, you guys, you know Jesus. Can you get me in? We'd like to see Jesus. This is far more profound than that. Even though they're there for Passover, they could be converts. They're still Greeks. They're still ethnic outsiders. They're still not anybody's idea of an ideal Israelite or what the kingdom of God is going to look like. But here are outsiders 
asking to see Jesus. It's, it's starting. The, the fulfillment of everything that God intended for Jesus is, is starting. Uh, they say, sir, we want to see Jesus. I think in the KJV it was, sir, we would see Jesus. I've got a slide here because it's a, it's a famous line that gets put on famous pulpits everywhere. People take that line and they put it on the top of pulpits in a brass plaque or they engrave it. And, and what's going on there? It's it's pretty cool little uh, power play actually by congregations everywhere. Because they donate the money for this pulpit that this preacher guy is going to stand in front of and they basically want to send him a message. Don't waste our time. We, we would see Jesus. That, that's what we want to hear from you. So it's a, it's a really beautiful line, um, but it, it's, it's important here. Uh, Jesus sees it as more than a compliment. He, he, remember, he's the one guy here that, that really knows what's going on. That's that Zechariah promise starting to happen already, that the whole world is coming to see the great and victorious king. One, one commentator called this message of Jesus his valedictorian address. He's calling it ahead of the cross. Um, he will now enter his glory, but by, by dying on a cross. And Jesus has these words about seeds. All of a sudden, he goes all uh, agricultural here. Now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. I tell you the truth, until, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to serve me must follow me because my servants must be where I am. And the Father will honor anyone who serves me. Now my soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? But this is the very reason I came. Father, bring glory to your name. I'll look at the answer that comes to that in a moment. What, what's, what's going on here with this, with this seed story? See, Jesus is famous for a parable of the sower, where he pictures himself as the sower, and he's spreading the gospel seeds. Remember that parable? Well, now he takes his giant 1,000-time zoom lens, goes right in and identifies himself as, as the seed. And, and, and by death... They, they have no idea what's about to come by his death. Like, we're so used to seed-bearing plants, we, we forget the miracle. It's an incredible part of God's creation. You know, God created apples how long ago? And every apple that you've ever eaten is a direct descendant of those apples. You know, they had seeds in them, and people used those seeds and planted more apples. And, you know, you don't need refrigerators or anything. You just, they just keep producing more and more seed-bearing things. And Jesus is saying here that this is his life. Once he dies, they have no idea the potential that's coming out and the new life that's going to be multiplied. How about your life with Christ? See, because we tend to just grasp at and try to protect and try to pad and try to make our lives more. And we try to hold on to our lives as if that's the number one thing. How are we using our lives? If we die to self and give our life to Christ, it can have that same potential of being so much more effective, useful, significant than we ever imagined. Am I getting a little carried away with significance? Well, Jesus talks here about honor. He says, the Father will honor anyone who serves me. If we're really honest with ourselves, we, we all would like to be honored. 
We all would like to be honored. We might say, oh, I don't care about honor. It's not about me. It's all, it's all about you, Lord. We don't, we don't need honor. If, if we weren't kind of hardwired to need honor, how do you explain like all the award shows? Like they have award shows for people to recognize that they win more awards than someone else. And it's a whole bunch of nothing, but it's like major television. Um, all these award shows. I think about the shows like, uh, I love the shows like America's Got Talent. Right? Because you see a regular Joe, but he has talent. He's unknown. He's anonymous. But he has this incredible talent nobody's ever seen. And finally, he gets honored for his talent. And the cell phone guy, the cell phone salesman guy, he ends up filling Royal Albert Hall, singing opera. And we think, oh, I can relate to that because I'm anonymous. I have no talent, but I'm anonymous. And there's something about it where we feel like we're getting that honor that they're given, right? Or, from the dark side, if you don't think that you care about being honored, how do you feel when you're dishonored, overlooked, um, mistreated, um, not given a fair shake? We get a reaction. Well, the good news is here, we give our lives to Christ. And the Father, the Father will honor everyone who serves him. That's pretty incredible. Don't you love God's honor? We all love God's honor. God will honor anyone, anyone on Judgment Day that serves Jesus. They won't be handing out Oscars on the last day. It won't matter if your name is on Lord Stanley Cup on that last day. The Father, highest honor, person who would have the highest standards, the greatest honor you could ever see would come from him, and he'll honor anyone, Jesus says, who serves me. Worldly honor is considered great only if it's only held by a few special people. <laughs> That's why they have award shows. We're all happy because one out of a bazillion people gets this Oscar, and they're going to be famous. They're going to be honored. They can never take that away from me. Athletes say, oh, I got a ring. You can never take that away from me. That's worldly honor. God's honor is available to everyone. Sometimes I play with my imagination. I was imagining this week... Uh, an unrepentant celebrity on Judgment Day seeing God honoring those that serve Jesus and think, like, what's this? He's honoring anybody. He's honoring, honoring everyone. And then as it starts to dawn on them, oh, I spent my entire life seeking an honor that would never last, that's meaningless now. I don't think anybody's standing there on Judgment Day with their Oscar in their hand or their Emmy or their Tony, or whatever other awards there are, that will be the only honor that will matter. It's available to everyone. Jesus says now, he says, my soul is deeply troubled. What's his big concern? His big concern is that God's name would be glorified. Father, bring glory to your name. Then a voice from heaven saying, I have already brought glory to my name. There's Jesus' life, and I will do so again, his death coming up in a week. When the crowd heard the voice, some thought it was thunder, while others declared an angel had spoken to them. Jesus said, I got to keep moving here. The voice was for your benefit, not mine. The time for judging the world has come, wherein Satan, the ruler of the world, will be cast out. And when I'm lifted up from the earth, I'll draw everyone to myself. He said this to indicate how he was going to die. Jesus reveals that he's six days from accomplishing the big trifecta, judging, casting, drawing. Those are the three important words. Judging, casting, drawing. They all take faith for us to believe that they happened 
that week, 2,000 years ago. What do I mean by that? Well, he claims that the whole entire world's going to be judged. We often warn about a final judgment day. I've already been talking about that, and I'll talk about it again today. But the, the, the real thing that we'll be judged by on that judgment day is what happened on that cross 2,000 years ago and what we did with it. Think about that. The ultimate judgment. Salvation, damnation. Don't use that word often in a sermon. But the switch in the tracks is all based on judgment on what we did with this thing that happened 2,000 years ago. So the world's already judged. Once Jesus dies on that cross, the world is already, he's already judged. The world's already been exposed for what it was. It's, its vicious ways were drawn out and exposed for what they were, that lightning strike of guilt and death on the cross. Then there's the hope gained from Jesus' resurrection, where by faith we receive this message of reconciliation. So there's one that's going to happen in six days. How about the devil eviction one? You know, Jesus says, the time for judging the world has come when Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. It's hard, except by the eyes of faith, to believe that Satan was somehow evicted, thrown out. Just six days after another school shooting. It's hard to believe that Satan was cast out, isn't it? Um, the devil still roams, works his wiles, seduces, tempts, tricks. But our good news, our good news now has the power to save because the world is no longer in the same way under him. You know, maybe we could think of this thrown out as, as being thrown off, um, if not out, at the cross. Satan is no longer the center of all life. We can now display Jesus as the center of all life. Uh, when he's given this title, the, the ruler of this world will be cast out, other passages of Scripture still refer to Satan as the ruler of this world, but that's a pretty small little piece of real estate in the big picture, isn't it? God's kingdom is something much bigger than just this little world. After the cross, all of Satan's holdings are ultimately in a doomed real estate market that's headed for an inevitable crash. By faith, we believe that's true with what Jesus did on the cross. How about the magnetism? He says, I'll draw everyone to myself. If you read ahead later this afternoon, there's a whole section in chapter 12 from 37 all the way down to the end. That's like, well, what about, why do so many people not believe if Jesus is going to draw all people to himself? Uh, Jesus says, I will draw everyone to myself. Other translations just, rather than everyone, say all. And at this point, we need to hold our theological kind of systems on a short leash. We need to let Jesus' words, everyone and all, say what it says and mean what it means. I don't for a second think and believe or teach that on Jesus' cross, everyone was saved. Um, but I do believe that we can really get off track by trying a whole lot of other magnets, tricks, and methods to try to attract people to the faith. The real power is in Jesus' death and what it implies about our need. And if we think about it, we've already spoken of the future appointment we all have with what we've done with this cross. Jesus is drawing all people to himself, to the cross, and on Judgment Day, that'll be the big thing. <laughs> what did you do with what I did 
way back then. Um, the death and resurrection. All paths do lead to God, but they don't arrive. That arrival is not the same experience for everyone. Our, our passage today has highlighted Jesus' willing submission to the pending cross that's just one week into his future. That chapter one, Lamb of God that takes away the sin, is that sacrifice language. The cross has been looming Jesus' entire life, especially in the Gospel of John. Your relationship to his cross has been looming your whole life as well, whether you realize it or not. It, it's, it's something that you have to deal with. You look at verses 34 to 36, the opportunity is time sensitive. The crowd responded, we understand from scripture that the Messiah would live forever. How can you say that the Son of Man will die? Just who is this Son of Man anyway? Jesus replied, remember these are the, these are the last words he gives to the crowds. My light will shine for you just a little longer. Walk in the light while you can, so the darkness will not overtake you. Those who walk in the darkness cannot see where they're going. Put your trust in the light while there is still time. Then you will become children of the light. And after saying these things, Jesus went away and was hidden from them. That's a killer line right there, isn't it? After saying these things, Jesus went away and was hidden from them. When do you plan to seek him? On what basis do you assume you'll still be able to find him when you do decide to seek him with all your heart? What might walking into, stepping forward into the light look like for you if you hear this call right now, that it's time limited and I have this meeting that I'm going to have to face based on what Jesus did on the cross. What's, what's walking into that look like for you? Maybe it's by talking to one of us about making a public profession of faith. You know, it's an awkward public act, baptism, that says, I believe Jesus commands it. I'm going to expose myself to the light in that act and identify myself as having placed my hope in his death and resurrection. Maybe that's the next step for you, of walking into the light while there's time. Maybe it's walking forward into the light means making more public professions of faith. Maybe you already did that, but like the little children's song that we take from the Sermon on the Mount, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. You know, I'm not going to hide it under a bushel. Maybe we need to take that Lazarus risk more often and just throw it out there. This is who I am and what it's about. It just might lead to more persecution and a little danger like it did for Lazarus, but it also may lead to many people finding Jesus because they recognize what God's done in your life. Maybe, you're gonna, maybe it's like being the Greek, asking a believer, somebody that does know Jesus, to take you to him, to show you what that looks like, how a person does that. And again, Jesus says, do it while you can before the darkness overtakes you. Look at verse 44, just before we close our Bibles. It has Jesus shouting. Your translation might say crying out. Mine says shouting. Jesus shouted to the crowds. It's his last, these are his last words. Now he's, he's shouting. He wants people to know, if you trust me, you're trusting not only me, but also God who sent me. If you come down, you'll read, uh, oh, I'm just gonna, for when you see me, you're seeing the one who sent me. I've come as a light to shine in this dark world. So all will put their trust in me so that all who put their trust in me will no longer remain in the dark. 
I will not judge those who hear me, but don't obey me, for I've come to save the world and not to judge it. But all who reject me and my message will be judged on the day of judgment by the truth I've spoken. I don't speak of my own authority. The Father who sent me has commanded me what to say and how to say it. And he's shouting still. I could have done that, but it would have unnerved you, I'm sure. Verse 50, and I know his commands lead to eternal life. So I say whatever the Father tells me to say. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that uh, we would have a lot of humility with our understanding of who your Son is, what it means to be a follower of Him. Lord, you're all-knowing, you're sovereign. We're not. But Lord, we've heard from this passage some clear teaching from Jesus that he is our only hope, that uh, we will be judged based on what we've done with Jesus. We can't ask, to ask that question, who is this son of man, and, and ask it in just a philosophical or a special interest or some comparative religion way, but it's a life or death question, and it's the most important one. And you've given us your word to answer it. Lord, I pray that you would give us the hearts in your spirit, to enable that word to be opened and help us to see Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us. For more information, please visit brooklynrbc.ca. The link is also in our bio. On behalf of the Renaissance Baptist Church of Brooklyn, we pray you have a blessed week.